0: Good morning. Now that he said I did a great job on the first service, I don't have to do such a great job here. Just kidding. (laughs) Lower the expectations a little bit, please. You guys already listened to Frank, so I guess I don't have a chance of that. Uh, Frank's one of my mentors. I love him. But if you were here, who was here two weeks ago and got to see Frank? Yeah. Okay. So pretty good number. Okay. They brought me in to fix a little bit of his mess. I know he can be a little negative when it comes to Arizona sports. Okay, if you were here, you know he was a little bit of a sand ballot when it came to uh, the Suns getting to the finals and then winning. We're not all like that over there at Arcadia. I, I'm pretty dang hopeful. Suns in four. I'm I'm hopeful. Yes, yes. Well, happy happy Fourth of July. Um, I also want to take the moment. There was also a, a video you guys got to watch when uh, Frank came. And in that video, you saw a gorgeous little baby crawl up to a camera and, and break the camera or something. Um, that was my daughter. Yeah, I had, to, I had to own that one. You guys are like, how does something so beautiful come from that guy? <laughs> well, I don't know. I've married a beautiful woman, and I guess that's it. But well, if you've been with us for the past few weeks, you know that we're in Nehemiah. So if you have your Bibles, this week we're going to be in Nehemiah 6. Go ahead and open them to Nehemiah 6. That's where we're going to be. If you're just now joining us, uh, I want to catch you up a little bit. And if you've been here, then it's a good jog of the memory. But I'm going to go through some context stuff and then kind of run through the old chapters that we went through. Um, before I do that, let me let me pray. Heavenly Father, um, we're gathered to worship you. Um, Lord, I pray that you would meet us in a way that would change our hearts, change us, change our behaviors. I pray that you would illuminate our minds and that you would ignite our hearts Lord, I pray that I would be forgettable, um, but that your word and your message today would be memorable and it would be lasting. Um, Lord, I do pray that you would bless this time. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm going to start with just the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a story among the greater story of the Bible. It's just one story of the of the one giant book. There's 66 books. One of those books within the main book, it's Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a, about God's people returning to becoming God's holy covenant treasured possession people. So they're not being that or operating in the 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 right way and then they return they're returning to that. And a part of that is building a wall. It's not about rebuilding a wall. It's about rebuilding this distinction as God's holy people. Well, uh, a little bit of the backstory. These Jews were taken captive like many years before Nehemiah comes around. They were taken from Judah. So the Israel was split in two. There was northern kingdom, Israel, and southern kingdom, Judah. And then Judah was conquered by the Babylonians. Babylonians took them to Babylon. Then Persia comes in, kicks the Babylonians' butts, and then sends a lot of the Jews back home. You can read a lot more of that in Ezra, which is the book right before Nehemiah, or in Haggai. But then there's also some Jews that instead of staying in Babylon or going back home to Jerusalem, they actually moved further east to Susa, which was the capital of Persia. That's Nehemiah, and that's some of the people who are gonna be going with Nehemiah. In chapters one through three, we learn that there's this guy who by vocation is a cupbearer which is a pretty cool job. You get to eat food and drink all the drinks and hang out with the king until like you get poisoned. But until that moment, it's pretty dang cool. So this is his vocation. He's also a Jewish man. Uh, and we learn that he's serving King Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes is the stepson to Esther. So this is really cool because 30 years earlier, the story of Esther would have happened. And this is again, just showing how the Bible is just one story. It's one story pointing, pointing to something, we'll, we'll get to that. But uh, King Artaxerxes, son of Xerxes, stepson to Esther, uh, Nehemiah learns, oh man, my hometown, that those walls still broken, nobody's f- built them up. And to him, he's thinking, oh man, they of course, they're built for defense and all that kind of stuff, the walls. But he's also thinking, oh my goodness, God's people are not being distinctively God's people. And so he's, he's heartbroken and he prays for months, four months, literally four months. He prays. And then he's also strategically ready with a plan. So he prays and he's ready with a plan. Interesting move. Well, God provides and King Artaxerxes talks to him. He says, yo, what's up? And then Nehemiah tells him, I want to go back and build a wall. So King Artaxerxes gives him his blessing, says, go ahead and go ahead and take a whole bunch of guys who are in my army who are, you know, going to protect you and stuff. So he sends him, well, now we have a bunch of Jewish people raised in foreign land because of the sins of their fathers coming to the promised land where they're going to face opposition, but God is going to be with them. Does this sound familiar? This is really similar to the story in Exodus when God's people leave the captivity of Egypt and move into the promised land. Really cool. Like there's Again, it's like one story. It's almost as if, you know, there's one author. It, it is that. God. Well, it moves into chapter 4 where we get the real taste of adversity and opposition. Sanballat, Tobiah, the whole gang. If you look at a map, you'll see that it, all their enemies just completely surrounded them in Jerusalem and we we kind of learn we don't kind of we actually we do learn that there's four main things they knew that really helped them during this adversity. When God's people face adversity, you have to know at least four things. I'm sure there's more, but when I read it, I thought four was good for chapter 4. So, first thing, they knew they knew their identity. Their identity is what ended up giving them their mission to be God's people and building up the wall. But also They didn't just put too much emphasis on the I in identity, which is a lot of times what we do. They knew that who they were was not found, their identity was not found in who they were, their identity was found in whose they were. They were much more concerned with the mission they were given because of God, being God's people. In fact, in Deuteronomy 7, God writes to them and he says, you are my chosen, I chose you, you are my Holy, set apart, different. You are my treasured possession. So that's they're operating out of that. And that gives them this mission to pursue that distinction by building up the wall. In, the, in this time, though, for you to be one of God's chosen people, you had to be Jewish or you had to become a Jew and live in the land of the Jews. So it was either by location or by family. We'll get more into what that becomes later but the first thing they knew they knew they had to know their identity in the face of this opposition second thing they knew is the appropriate sense of urgency the appropriate sense of urgency uh in 2016 i became a paramedic and i was doing the bivocational thing and then i ended up uh covid happened and <clears throat> instead of being a very strong and like wonderful paramedic i was being a pastor to youth kids, and it just didn't work to tell, you know, like youth kids, mom, yeah, I was transporting a COVID patient yesterday, but I'm fine, I wear a mask. Like, it just doesn't work. So I had to quit that for a time. Um, so right now I'm not doing paramedic stuff, but one of the stuff you have to know as a paramedic is the sense of urgency. You're always wanting to move in an efficient pace, but there's times where you can, we call it stay and play or load and go. And if you load and go, and it's one of those code three kind of things, lights and sirens, Uh, which you can go code two, which is you just drive normally. No lights and sirens, or you can go code three, which is like all the lights and sirens. I don't know what code one is or four. I think it's just, I don't know why it's two and three. They didn't tell me that. But you go through all school and it's like, what is code one? I don't, you're sleeping, I don't know. So, uh, but you have to know the appropriate sense of urgency, because if you go code three, you're entering into the most hostile part of EMS. People, if you look at the statistics, and this stuff they tell you a lot when you go through your EVOC training, your emergency vehicle operation certification. I think that's it. When you go through your EVOC training, they, train, they watch these videos of all these ambulances crashing, getting hit, and it always happens in an intersection when they're going code three. People just like slam on their brakes. They don't know what to do when there's, somebody, there's an ambulance. Well, if I'm going to tell my EMT so I'm a paramedic, so I'm working with the patient. My EMT is going to drive me into the hospital. If I'm telling my EMT we're going to go code three, it's got to be really, really urgent. One of the things we learned here is that they found it very urgent. They slept with their clothes on. I don't know about you. If I work all day, sun up till the stars come out in Arizona, I don't want to sleep in those clothes. But they were so urgent. It was so urgent to them that they were willing to sleep in their clothes, be ready to fight, and work in a day. We'll learn later how quickly they were able to finish God's mission of building this this wall but they were willing to stay in danger this how urgent was to them rather than pause god's work they also knew how god worked they knew how god worked this is important a lot of times we're waiting for some overly miraculous thing to happen to see god's hand working and moving but god uses god works supernaturally using natural things god works supernaturally using natural things it's not about uh, some crazy miraculous thing happening but that God calls us to be faithful in these times um, just as they were and then he uses that It says it doesn't say that they just prayed and waited they prayed and set a guard when they were under attack when they were being threatened so not only do they pray and acknowledge God's hand in it but they also act and move they were willing to ask God to move and be what God used they didn't just ask God for things. They asked God what things God might use them for. So they were willing to be used. It makes me think of a few prayers that we probably pray, and it's good that we pray, Lord, clothe the poor. Feed the hungry. It's good things. Are we also asking, are we willing to be those things that to fulfill that prayer? Lord, help the sons win. Put me in at point guard, Lord, I'm ready, I'm willing. Well, they had to know how God worked, but they also needed to know their weapons. Uh, Nehemiah uses the sword of the Spirit well, God's word. He prays Scripture. He's praying Jeremiah when he prays in Nehemiah 4, which is kind of cool. And then he also encourages with Scripture. He quotes Nehemiah 7 when he's talking about all of the uh, go and fight. It's kind of like this brave heart, like. Why does your army go? He's he's got this passion, but he's using God's word to encourage and he's using God's word to pray. So he wields the sword of the spirit well and it's because he knew who his enemy really was. He knew there was more than just people. We have to know our enemy and we have to know the right weapons to fight the right enemy. So those are the four things. Then we move into chapter five and we enter this cycle of repentance that the Jews are in. This cycle of, of repentance. God has this good relationship with with man, and they're good, and then they sin and mess it up, and then they're in a bad relationship with God. God disciplines them, and then they repent, and then uh, they are made right in the covenant, and then it happens again and again, and we saw that in chapter 5. We'll see it again in 13, but in chapter 5, they're exploiting the poor. Nehemiah rebukes them, God's discipline. They repent, And basically what we get is people mess things up. God fixes things and people mess things up. If you look at my life, you'll see that people mess things up and God fixes things. What I'm getting at is we're going to be looking at how this covenant that they're operating under, God's covenant people and trying to be faithful in the midst of it, is really a message to point towards and a sign to point towards the new covenant in Jesus that rides on his faithfulness. So that's really what we're seeing here is, but still the Holy Spirit is able to work through Nehemiah to be faithful in the midst of this. So we're going to see how Nehemiah is faithful in the face of adversity. Instead of being fearful, that's going to be a main theme of what we're going to talk about. Instead of him being fearful, he chose to be faithful. So let's start. Verse 1. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of the enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, come and let us meet together at Hakafirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, so he responds, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Now, if he were to stop and come down to him, this was miles away for him to go to Samaria. So it would have taken more than just, you know, going out for coffee. It would have been like a hike. And he's not about to do that to pause God's work. So Nehemiah says, oh no, to oh no. Not <laughs> dad jokes, somewhere. But this is serious. When we're on God's mission, church, there is always going to be opposition and there's always going to be adversity. That's how it is. Jesus dealt with it and we're going to deal with it. Nehemiah deals with it. But he also knows, I find this fun, he knows that they don't approve of what he's doing and yet he calls it a great work. So he identifies with God's work even though it makes him less popular. He's like, yeah, I'm doing the great work. He knew that his mission was to do God's work, not make people happy. Following God is often not culturally popular. Verse five. In the same way, Samballot for the fifth time. Did I skip four? So I'll start in four. And they sent to me four times in this way and answered, and I answered them in the same manner, in the same way Samballot for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in hands. That's important to know when it says open letter, it means that everybody knows about this. He's reading it to everybody and anybody as he's walking in to Jerusalem. It's not a closed sealed letter. Otherwise, it would have said it was a sealed letter. So it's not just between Sambalat and Nehemiah. We kind of see what Sambalat is doing. He's spreading some rumors. So what, is, what does it say? In, in it was written, it is reported among the nations and Geshem also says it that you and the Jews intend to rebel... That is why you are building the wall. And and according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah, and now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. That is so, four times he says it, and four times he says no. Fifth time, he still says no. God's people are not called to be faithful once. God's people are called to be faithful, faithfully. Even in the face of adversity. Nehemiah would not let distractions prevent him from doing God's work. I would imagine that he would have been such a good dad. Kids asking him, Dad, can we have some coffee before bed? No. Dad, please, no. Dad, please, no. Four more times like this and he says no. The fifth time. Do you see where I'm going there? He, he has to be steadfast, not just faithful once. I think often that we get stuck in this mindset that we just have to do, okay, I did it, I did it faithfully, and I can move on. No, we're called to be steadfast in our faithfulness as God's people. Well, even after countless steadfast responses to these distractions, Sanballat and Tobiah, they relentlessly persist. Makes me think of a few other things that relentlessly persist: busyness. We first, we definitely look at busyness as a virtue. People ask, "How are you doing, man? I'm good. I'm busy. I use my time well." That's what we're really saying, you know. I just got a lot of things to do, and I'm important. So, we look at busyness as if it's like a virtue. But it's interesting that when we really get busy, the first things that go are most of the times most important things and things that are most life-giving to us. Sometimes the first things that go are spiritual disciplines. I just didn't have time to read this morning. I had to get up early and start at work, or what have you. Or we think about how you know I just couldn't make it on Sunday because I had to do this or that. It's not you guys though, because even on Fourth of July you're here. That's what I'm talking about. I'm just teasing. somehow we can still make it to the gym. If you're me, gym's first thing to go. But some of you will make it to the gym, and most of us, most all of us, will still watch our Netflix show. Or, or Amazon Prime. I don't discriminate, I don't know. Whatever, it's Gilbert out here. I don't know what you guys, what, is it Netflix? Or? Well, another thing I feel like that gets us distracted and is always persisting is our pursuit of safety financial safety, physical safety. We, instead of putting priority of safety in its rightful place, we get distracted by it and put it in a place above what God might have us do. So we don't ask and, and answer faithfully what God and what might you have us do. It's we we act out of what makes us safe and comfortable. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. We should, we should be safe. We should pursue those, but it should be second to what God might have us do. The last thing is, Nehemiah doesn't stop and get distracted so he can go and play politics. I love that. It's not important to him to have good uh, foreign relations. It's important to him to do God's work. They're making stuff up, trying to pick a fight, and instead of addressing it, he stays doing God's work. Let's move on, verse eight. Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you say have been done for you are inventing them out of your own mind. You're making that up. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. And then he he turns and he prays to the Lord, but now God, strengthen my hands. So he just calls truth what it is. That's not true. And then what does he do? He acknowledges God. He didn't stop to go and plead the truth to King Artaxerxes. Hey, you know, King Artaxerxes, they're going to be saying some things about me. Don't believe it. He doesn't stop and pause to do that. No. See, King Artaxerxes knows Nehemiah. And Nehemiah, up until this point, has consistently, steadfastly pursued faithfulness. Nehemiah knows that if if his faithfulness pushes towards his blameness. Blame, blamelessness, if he's found blameless, then when something like this comes up, it wouldn't bring shame on him when, it, when he's slandered. King Artaxerxes would have known him well enough to know what he's not. And he knew that. Nehemiah knew that that was gonna happen. So he doesn't waste time trying to plead what was true, what wasn't to King Artaxerxes. If we are faithful like Nehemiah to be blameless, slander will bring shame on those who say it rather than us. This is, again, to be steadfast in our faithfulness. Titus 2, 7 and 8 says it this way. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. We have to take seriously our steadfastness and faithfulness. What's more is Nehemiah shows this heart of submission to King Artaxerxes. This stuff that's being said about him isn't true, but it very well could be. I can imagine this guy who's zealous for the Lord and wants God's people to be free from this Gentile rule might want political salvation from King Artaxerxes. It makes sense to me. I, yeah, I, maybe we should have a, a king of the Jews back. And, and they're looking forward to the prophecies that have come from the Old Testament thinking, oh man, maybe this is the time. Nehemiah doesn't do that. Nehemiah stays submissive to King Artaxerxes. Nehemiah's submission to God was expressed through his submission to the leaders God placed over him. Nehemiah's submission to God was expressed through his submission to the leaders God had placed over him. So he was willing to submit to someone who God placed over him, even though he was a Gentile, even though he would've been close enough to him as a cupbearer to know his sin, to know his imperfection, to know why he shouldn't be in office, why he shouldn't be there. And yet, he's faithful to submit to him. That's interesting, because the very heart of the Jews, of what they were told to do by God when they were leaving Jerusalem the first time, so this would've been Nehemiah's ancestors, that was, and we read about this in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was uh, one of the prophets at the time, and Jeremiah says so he doesn't stop at submitting to the king he actually seeks his welfare in Jeremiah 29 it says but seek the welfare of the city where i have sent you into exile that doesn't make sense to me these are the bad guys god these are the these are gentile gods or guys these are gentile guys i shouldn't be serving these guys and seeking their welfare no that's not that's not what god tells him to do what does he say he says and pray to the Lord on its behalf. Don't just just submit to them, seek their welfare, pray for them, and in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Are we so loyal to our citizenship in heaven that we are willing to pray for, seek the welfare of, support, and submit to whoever our leader is, whoever our president is, whoever our boss is, got really quiet. Side note all these heroes these old Old Testament talks about is really pointing to the one main hero. You know who else was accused of trying to set up a political kingship and was accused of starting an insurrection? Jesus was. The Nehemiah is a picture of Jesus to come. Again, this is just one story. Really cool how we're going through the Old Testament and we still see how it connects, everything connects. God is the only author, true author of scripture. Let's move on, verse 10. Now when I went into the house of Shemeah the son of Deleah, son of Mehedabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God, in the temple, within the temple, let us close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. That sounds like a good idea to me. Shoot, people are coming to kill me? Let's, let's, where are we going? You know? No, that's not what he does. What is he? But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. What he's hinting at here, because he knows God's law, is that he, not being a Levite priest, is not allowed to go into the temple. So he's like, no, I'm not gonna do that. That would be wrong. But it goes on and it says this. Verse 12, and I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. So he sees right through what's going on. Verse 13, for this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid Trying to instill fear, fear mongling, and act in this way and sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Nehemiah doesn't let the excuse of danger discern for him what is right. A lot of times, we're going to look at our situation and say, "Man, this is just this seems like the right thing for my safety." For he doesn't let danger be an excuse to discern what is right for him. He knows God's word and he lets God's word discern for him what is right and what is from the Lord. Because he knew God's word, because he knew what was wrong and this guy who's telling him to do something that's wrong, he was able to know if this guy was from the Lord or not. Similarly, similarly for us who are, in, who are God's people, we should know God's word and use it as our discernment for what's from the Lord and what is not. It's not just a book of suggestions. It's God's very words to us. Something to note is these enemies would have attacked in small raiding parties. They wouldn't have brought their whole army because that would have been uh, basically inviting this huge Persian army to retaliate because he's going with the blessing of the king of Persia. So they would have had to be small raiding parties, kind of like insurgents. Well, Nehemiah is like the U.S. government. He will not negotiate with terrorists. So he doesn't negotiate with terrorists. There he is. There's my 4th of July plug. Um, but God's law said he couldn't go into the temple. He's not a Levite priest. In fact, if he had gone into the temple, God's law said that that was a penalty, uh, that that was, would be penalized by death. So you go into the temple, you just got the death penalty. So he's, okay, this is serious, And there's another king who we've read about who goes into the temple. His name's King Uzziah. He thinks he's all that and a bag of potato chips, walks into the temple, burns some incense. He ends up getting leprosy on his head. So this pretty serious deal, it's not just a room. He can't go into the temple. But here's another thing that's going on in the background. He says, I'm not going to do that because that would be a cowardly move everybody else knows I'm here trusting and fearing the Lord. I'm not here trusting and fearing what these people are trying to put in me. I'm not going to answer to that fear. I'm actually only going to answer and and heed to what God's word says. He would have not only been discredited by the people there, he would have in himself been operating how he wasn't created to operate. Well, instead of expressing a lack of trust in God. He expresses this lack of trust of God. And I think it is Psalm, Psalm 33. David writes this, and he says, no king is saved by the size of his army. Nehemiah knows, man, it doesn't matter how many people you bring up against me. It doesn't matter how big your army is. No warrior escapes by his strength, great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. What's interesting is when you would talk about your army to by the nations when you would keep records, you would count the horses you had as your cavalry. It was important and it showed your great strength, how many chariots you had, how many horses you had. So it, it says uh, it wasn't about the horses. Despite all the horses' great strength, it cannot save. Here we are. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him. On those whose hope is in his unfeeling love to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. Nehemiah was willing to stay in danger rather than sin for self-preservation. To be faithful, we cannot make decisions formed from fear. We make decisions formed by God's word. We're called to be faithful faithfully by using God's word as our discernment. We read on, verse 14, Again, he, he, the camera angle switches to him talking to God and he says, remember Tobiah and Sanballat. oh my God, according to these things they did and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. Remember them, God, this wicked thing that they did. There's a few things that happen here. It's real similar to the prayer he prayed in Nehemiah 4. It's not just a prayer, Lord, deliver me. This is a prayer, Lord, get them. In Nehemiah 4, he prayed something similar, but there's, here's the thing that he's really, he's really saying this. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. You know what it doesn't say? It doesn't say that he rode out to uh, Persia, grabbed some more troops and then brought them back and then destroyed these people who are opposed to them. It doesn't say that he mounts up an attack even with the people he had. What does he do? He gives it to the Lord. Here's something that's pretty cool I heard said once. God's vengeance never has collateral damage. We always should be trusting the Lord with that. But it's not, it's not up to us, and that's what he declares here. And I'm not saying that you should pray this over the people who cut you off on the freeway, by the way. Hey, you pull up next to him, praying for you. Now that's not what I'm saying, okay? Let's read on. Verse 15, so the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul. So this would have been six months that he gets the project finished from the time he talks to King Artaxerxes to the time that he this is written where it's finished. So it's about six months. This dude was put to work, man. For almost a century, they've been trying to build this wall and failed. They've started and stopped and started and stopped, and they haven't been faithful to finish it. So six months, this guy gets it done. If you wanna, if you wanna get something done, man, you give it to somebody who's busy. And this guy, this is our guy. So, and then it says in 52 days, 52 days. So 52 days they slept in their clothes. 52 days, they didn't go home to see family and take a break. 52 days, but they had it, it was so urgent for them. Anyway, I think that's just amazing. They built the walls of Jerusalem in 52 days. Verse 16, and when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, they're humbled, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of, doesn't say Nehemiah, with the help of our God. What started as enemies trying to make people fear them became these enemies fearing God. After faithful and steadfast labor that Nehemiah and these people, I mean, it wasn't, I can just imagine day after day, 52 days. Have we even, I don't, I can't think of a time that I have actually uh, done something consistently every day, all day for 52 days. And these weren't just people who were builders. These were perfumers. We learn about that in chapter three. We learned that these all different types of people come together to do God's work, but it was urgent and it was important to them. And after this faithful and steadfast labor, God was feared. God's glory was had. Nehemiah wasn't feared, it was God. But like Nehemiah, for people who are in Christ, for God's covenant people, our why our reason for why we do the mission of God, why we labor, why we get our hands dirty and why we get calluses on our spiritual hands. The reason or why we do this is God's glory, not personal prosperity, not just richness of blessings, not, here you go, because it makes me feel good. You know, I like giving back. It makes me feel good. That's not why we're called to be faithful. Newsflash God's glory is not about us. It's not about you. It's not about me. I will say this seeking God and being faithful to Him does bring blessing and it brings good and it brings peace. But that isn't our why. We should be most concerned with God's glory, not what's in it for us. A problem here, let me read this. Or say this Romans 8:28. So when we uh, come to this place of adversity and we're trying to be faithful to God's call for us and it's hard and it's difficult, we have to cling to God's promises and here's one of them Romans 8:28 and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those called according to His purpose. we have to cling to that. Here's the problem though with our sinful minds. What we think is good isn't actually what's best for us. We have to to at some point recognize that we don't have it figured out. And we have to also recognize God does have it figured out. When we seek his glory, that's us seeking our good. When we seek his glory, that's us seeking our good. That's what's best for us. Makes me think of Joseph. If you've you've read Genesis, you've gotten to hear the story of Joseph. If you haven't, you absolutely should because it's an incredible story. Again, it's one story among the greater story of the Bible. This guy, Joseph, is humiliated time and time again. His brothers sell him into slavery. In fact, every time though, he's faithful. One time, his faithfulness is what got him humiliated. The wife of his boss tries to seduce him over and over and over again, and he keeps being steadfast in his faithfulness and says no. She gets mad and she ends up telling the lie that he tried to rape her. He gets put in prison. His faithfulness actually led him to personal humiliation. Well, we know in the end of this story, he is exalted. Just like those who are in Christ, we will be exalted in the end. His personal humiliation, though, led to him coming to this position in exaltation later in a way that would bring salvation to the people around. Because of him, God was able to have them store up food through the seven years of famine. Through his personal humiliation, it brought salvation for the people around him. Sounds like somebody else that I know. Again, it's one story. It's best for us to be faithful and trust God to work things out. What's actually best for us isn't personal prosperity. It's not making the money Money doesn't make things easier, even though I wouldn't know. I've never had a lot of money. It's not rich blessings. It's not what makes us feel good. And here's another, it's not what makes life easier. We're not promised it gets easier on this side of heaven. We're called to be faithful. Let's move on, verse 17. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them, for many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Urah, and the son of Jehochanan, had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, and as his wife. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence, they're talking all about how great he is, and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. There's that afraid again, trying to bring fear. So what does he do? What is he, oh man, he's faithful over and over and over again and he just can't catch a break. It just, persistently there. Even after doing the right thing over and over and over, there's no reprieve from this opposition and it'll be the same way for us who are in Christ. But see, Nehemiah knew his reward wasn't ease. His reward was God's glory. It doesn't get easier after he was faithful time and time again. But he's faithful to the Lord And God's glory was had, and that was what brought the most good. As displayed here, we too, the people of God, are called to be faithful faithfully, even when it doesn't seem to serve our personal best interests. And the consistency of this opposition changes faces, but the consistency should show us who the real enemy is the enemy is Satan and his demons. We might think, oh man, like you actually believe that at this church? Yeah, we absolutely do. The enemy is real. Nehemiah fights this battle spiritually and physically, as we should, both in, in nat- by natural means, but also on our hands and knees, putting on the armor of God, Ephesians 6, taking that seriously. But we should know there is a battle, and we have to know who the enemy really is, We have to know the enemy's there. uh, When I was in college, my first year, I didn't know how much I wanted to relax and just have a good time, so I was in ROTC, Army ROTC. Um, It's really not that hardcore, Um, you get made fun of by the people who are actually in the Army, but they train you to be in the Army, be officers in the Army, and uh, I wanted to have long hair and sleep in, so I quit after a year, but when I was in, There was this class I took where I got to study different military tactics. And it was about infantry, so it's about how we would take over land and all this kind of stuff. Well, I got to study um, Operation Iraqi Freedom. In about three months, we and the Brits and a few other countries who are good allies rolled through, and three months went from one end of the country to the next. Three months. But then after that, we had to use totally different tactics. We, knew, we thought we knew who our enemies were when we went in, but once we were in there for a long time, we had no idea. You look at someone and they're your friend eating with you, and, and then the next day they're shooting at you. Iraq and in Afghanistan, this was, at, this was insurgent warfare. General Petraeus had to write a totally new, he was a general at the time, uh, totally new uh, tactics and policies on how we handle this because we don't know who the enemy is. It wasn't like World War II where they had their SS uniforms and they had, flew their swastika flag. It wasn't like that. We didn't know who the enemy was. Similar to insurgent warfare, spiritual warfare, we don't see the enemy, but we have to know there's a battle and we have to know the is there and we have to be ready. We have to be ready. We think that our enemies are people who disagree with us politically. That's who we think our enemies are because we don't see the real enemy we think that our enemies are people who disagree with our view of social reform how we can fix things those aren't our enemies we think our enemies are Clippers fans and they are <laughs> but we have to know our true enemy and we have to fight faithfully those with faith in Christ are now the covenant people of God It used to be that your family and your location determined your requirements of being in the family of God, but now today it is one thing, faith in Christ alone. That is what makes us in the covenant people of God. Jesus makes this new covenant that rests on his faithfulness, not on ours. Because I say we're called to be faithful, but we don't do it perfectly. We saw that in chapter five in Nehemiah. We'll see it again in chapter 13. We need the covenant with Christ where it's his faithfulness that gets us our salvation. But here's the thing with that. That doesn't change the fact we're called to be faithful. It's just on this side of the covenant, we have Christ in us to make us faithful. What Jesus does when we answer the family of God, when we're created a new creation, is that our nature is different now. Before, scripture says we were sons of, of disobedience and objects of wrath. But in Christ, a new creation, we're made new. Revelation 21, Jesus says, he's in the business and making all things new. Behold, I'm making all things new. So he's still making us new. But here we are now, we have a new nature. The original nature we had in uh, Genesis with Adam and Eve, people. Our nature was to be cultivators of life, to do good works, and love, to love God and love people. So this is what it looks like, is it's not we do these things so that we can be saved. We do these things because it's who we are now that we are saved. We don't do it because it gets us good reward. Our spiritual lives are not us getting our pay. We do it for God's glory and because that's who he's made us to be. Well, he calls us, Jesus calls us, if we're in this family, to be faithful, faithfully, using God's word to discern what is right. He calls us to be faithful, faithfully, even if it doesn't seem to serve our personal best interest. Remember this, though. Jesus asks us after having disbladed himself. Innocent, dying a painful death on the cross, becoming sin who knew no sin, experiencing separation from God the Father, which never happened. That would have been the most painful part of this. Not all the other stuff, but that. And he does that so that we might be able to step in, be adopted sons and daughters in his family. But that doesn't seem like he was serving his own personal interests. Jesus shows us what what it looks like to perfectly be what we were called to be. So that every tribe, tongue, and nation may worship God in unity. In a minute, Jeremy's going to come up, Um, I'm going to pray, and then you got, we're going to go through communion together. But as we walk into communion, uh, we're practicing the renewal of this covenant that we're in. Because we don't get it right all the time, there's repentance. Take a moment as we do this as a sacred moment to talk with God and repent, coming back to him, renewing this covenant, I recognize that the Christian walk is hard. I don't do it perfectly. But if we genuinely pursue being faithful faithfully for God's glory, it will bring our good. Jesus died willingly on the cross so that we could be adopted into this family. So let's let's take this time as we go into communion. Seriously, let me pray and welcome the band up. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for Nehemiah and for what you've taught us in the midst of it. Lord, I pray that you might connect this to our lives, that we might be changed and different, that you would inflame our hearts, Lord, and illuminate our minds. Lord, I pray that we would grow in our steadfastness. I pray that we would grow into being people of God who are faithful, faithfully, regardless of the situations. Lord, I pray we would know your word well, and I just thank you for blessing this church and this church family, that we could gather together and worship you. Praise in Jesus' name, amen.